This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Nina is off this week. We're talking about a ghost story and the theme of repetition. Helen, kick us off. Okie doke. Ghosts are ambivalent twilight beings, half living, half dead. Our ghost is the presence of an absence. The various inhabitants of the house concretely exist there, young families, hipster couples, pontificating party hosts. But the ghost both exists and doesn't exist over years and centuries in and around this nondescript dwelling. Such a vacillating state of being is reflective of the polyvalent way that humans want things, one of which in particular is foregrounded in the film, Drive. This parable from René Girard's Deceit Desire in the novel delineates the process of drive quite clearly. A man sets out to discover a treasure he believes is hidden under a stone. He turns over stone after stone but finds nothing. He grows tired of such a futile undertaking, but the treasure is too precious for him to give up. So he begins to look for a stone which is too heavy to lift. He places all his hopes in that stone and he will waste all his remaining strength on it. This parable expresses the repetitious nature of drive. A contingent failure in the pursuit of a treasured thing leads the searcher to unknowingly shift his libidinal energy from the treasure to that which prevents him from accessing the treasure. The barrier that the searcher comes up against, perhaps in a different guise each time, is the haunting of the failure to access the treasured object in the first place. We are inhabited by our failures, but this haunting serves a purpose. It animates our very being, it inflames our desire. It allows for a fantasy to continue to exist that the original object might have made us transcendentally happier. In the film, The Ghost's Very Return, his centuries-long circular existence, is driven by a contingent frustration, a failure to discover what was written on the note left by his wife in the wall when she leaves after the death of his physical incarnation. This little house on the prairie takes on meaning for the ghost, and also for the original man who can't quite put his finger on the reason why, his, why he has tied to the place because of the contingent missing of his former incarnation to find out what she had written. It is a house of nothings romanticised by the haunting, given significance by the haunting, a haunting generated by an initial unknown. As soon as he reads the message, his very being evaporates. Whereas ordinary desire seeks its overcoming in an object, drive seeks the failure itself. Everyday desire seeks its end in getting something, a cup of coffee for energy, a sandwich for sustenance, a holiday, a car, a bath at the end of the day. It operates on the level of consciousness. Drive is unconscious and seeks the repetition of failure. Desire is utilitarian, functioning as part of what Freud called the pleasure principle. Drive is beyond the pleasure principle. I can't speak. Drive is beyond the pleasure principle. It is what separates us from animals and is a relic of our initial marking with lack. Drive is an untractable part of what makes us human. It is part of the uncompleted whole that renders us beings beyond reason, able to speak and to think and to feel. But it can also cause great suffering. It is continually eating despite being full. It's the need to accrue more wealth than we could ever possibly spend in our lifetime. It's working 70 hours a week when only 30 will do. It's exercising excessively and knowing when to stop. None of these things are, of course, in our best interest. They are operating in the capitalist mode. Capitalism is a psychic and libidinal nexus that emerges from this distorted form of desire. 
Like a zombie, the capitalist accrues, destroying himself for the promise of an eventual comfort that will never come. There is, though, perhaps a solution. We cannot overcome our lack and we cannot overcome our distorted ways of wanting things, but we can tarry with them, bring them to the level of consciousness and lower the stakes. In his 2013 book, Enjoying What We Don't Have, Todd McGowan recognises that we would be entirely void and non-desiring without these contingent missings of otherwise non-magical things. The poeticism of the film, its forward and circular motion revolve around the frustrated ghost. We must not let our desires pass us by, but we also must not believe that achieving our fantasies is where we will find true happiness. But understanding that we find enjoyment in the not getting, that it is only not getting itself that gives us meaning, however bittersweet, we can lower the stakes on our process of drive and exchange the roller coaster of pain and disappointment for something more reasonable, ordinary unhappiness. All right. Lots to think about there. Now it's my turn. In a ghost story, Casey Affleck, the brother of Ben Affleck, is so attached to his house that even when he dies, he stays. Affleck's ghost is forced to watch as his partner moves on first from him and then from the house. New folks arrive, but Affleck's ghost drives them away. Eventually, the house is torn down and replaced with a skyscraper. Affleck's ghost jumps off the building and emerges in the distant past when pioneers first settled the area. He watches himself move into the house. He watches himself die, and he watches his ghost watch his partner grieve all over again. It's a kind of ghostception. Karl Marx famously said that history repeats itself first as tragedy and second as farce. Though there isn't much to laugh at in this film, Affleck's ghost sheet gradually grows more ragged as the film goes on, its eye holes more ominous. While the film doesn't grow funnier, Affleck's decision to cling to the house does grow more ridiculous. A sentimental attachment to the house where your partner lives is one thing, but Affleck stays after the partner is long gone, after the house is torn down, after the house has been rebuilt atop the graves of the pioneers who were slaughtered before Affleck's eye holes by indigenous people. It's all ultimately in the service of reading a note the partner left behind and a crevice in the wall, a crevice which Affleck spends the whole film struggling to pick open. Part of what makes the old Marx quote compelling is that Marx tells us that history repeats itself in part by changing. Because it repeats itself as tragedy, or as farce, it isn't really repeating itself at all. Instead, history is being performed in a tragic or farcical style by actors who are referencing our collective memory, but also adding a new aesthetic spin to that memory. Nothing ever truly repeats, but the new can make use of our memories of the old. You can't go home again, but you can cling to symbols which connect you to a narrative of a past that is long lost. Of course, underneath those symbolic similarities, time marches on, conditions change. For nationalists, the narrative of the nation-state provides a sense of rootedness. While countries still go by their old names and fly their old flags, and presidents and prime ministers are still elected in the old way, global capitalism slowly creates new arrangements that make the policies of the past untenable. Try to rein in trade, to tax capital or to boost wages, and jobs and investment flow abroad. More and more economic policy is dictated by the need to attract immigrants and investors. Political leaders have less room to deviate. As they become less effective and less important, they lean ever more on symbols and cultural interventions. These interventions won't change our lives, but they remind us of a time when politics mattered more, when human beings mattered more. At least that's how some of us remember it. What if that significance was always an illusion? At one point in the film, there's a party at the house, and one of the guests goes on one of these monologues about how the universe will eventually come to an end. 
I feel like I've heard someone give this kind of speech a thousand times. No one will be around to remember anything you do. The universe will end in ice or be reborn in fire. So why does any of it matter? Affleck's ghost isn't impressed. He's still after his partner's note, and he flashes the house lights at the guy. The speech is pretty shallow. Do acts have to be remembered to be glorious, to be significant? Do they have to last? Isn't it enough to brighten someone's day, regardless of whether those few happy hours have quantifiable eternal consequences? The fixation on being remembered stems from an obsession with maintaining the self-other distinction. A person who isn't satisfied with a good deed unless someone else remembers it as theirs is not only unable to appreciate the good for its own sake, but to accept that no part of the universe can escape the fate of the whole. People misunderstand the problem with globalization. It's not that the nation-state has lost significance or that the local is overpowered by the global. The problem is that the specific global systems that are overpowering our old human institutions are so dysfunctional. The universe has always been too big for any one person or polity to dominate. But it matters that we make the most of present moments. It's horrifying that we have constructed a human structure that ignores human needs, that ruins the little moments, that instrumentalizes everything. If we ask ourselves whether the part really matters as a part, divorced from the whole, we'll never like the answers we find. But if we stop focusing on whether we matter and start focusing on a whole universe that matters, we can remake systems instead of rethinking how to fit into them. After all, what is a ghost but one who clings to the walls of the particular for fear of becoming one with the universal? I really like that last thought. That's very true. Clinging on to a certain incarnation rather than returning to the void. Um, and also, yeah, that idea of uh, history repeating itself first as tragedy, then as farce. Um, there is a certain thing, you know, I, and I guess it was ever thus, but that is particularly annoying right now where old injustices or old forms of being quote-unquote radical have been weaponized to mean that a certain class of people can never be uh criticized um and not and and be sort of divorced from the reality of being a human being that any obviously we're not denying certain injustices and all of that but it's like not being able to have any modicum of uh proper analysis about anything political or even uh, the ability to understand that life is a bit tough sometimes um, and it's sort of reducing a group to a childlike status because of a past order of things. And I don't know, you know, everybody goes on at the moment about like nostalgia culture and there's nothing new and I don't know, I'm not sure if I like entirely buy that, but there is a sort of thing of like for our... um, cultural and political references always looking to the past and then you sometimes think like how did movements in the past come out of you know emerge when all we seem to be doing is rehashing things from 50 years ago but of course like society hasn't really changed anyway so there is that well i think that even when you do something again or when you you nostalgically reference something the fact that you're doing it as something that it's being nostalgically referenced changes what it is. Because when people first did it, they didn't do it with a sense of nostalgia. You know, I, I showed a friend of mine an old video from you know, 2009 for some reason or other. And my friend said, oh, that's nostalgic. Uh, it, it's not nostalgic. It's just what happened. When you're there, it, there's nothing nostalgic about it. It's only when you are trying to reuse it in some new way later 
that it feels nostalgic. And so if something feels nostalgic, that's part of how it's new and different. Yeah. And I think that if we look further back in history, what we find is that all of the stuff that we think of as new, to some degree to the people in that period, back reference things that, and was connected in some way to a past. You know, there's that famous quote where uh, you know, Julius Caesar visits the tomb of Alexander the Great and laments how he hasn't accomplished anything compared to Alexander, given how young Alexander was when he conquered the world. Uh, if you're a Roman, you're reading yourself through the lens of this of this Greek figure, even though, of course, when we think of the Roman Empire, it's a very different kind of empire from the Hellenistic Empire. It ends up functioning in a very different way. It has very different political theory and legitimation narratives and so on. Uh, people are always reading themselves as connected to a past. And when we remember that past, we go, well, it's it's repeating. But as soon as we forget the past, it feels new. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny because I'm um, just talking about this like nostalgia stuff and maybe the aesthetic. I'm working on this project at the moment that involves a lot of um, archive footage, and there is something about so so in in like cinematography, people often look to 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter because it adds this sort of grain. <laughs> and it's funny because it's you know the, the, to me what makes it desirable and elevated is the fact that it has this kind of distortion to it it's like that the too perfect hd or the 4k doesn't have something innately artistic within it or it, it becomes artistic retrospectively when it's sort of when there is the possibility to have some this completely like clear image and this like grained aspect to it automatically it becomes that's very good you know <laughs> it's funny because looking at this archive footage which is sort of 30 30 years old 20 30 years old most most of it it already adds this dimension of like artistic merit just by being old <laughs> and i don't know what it is about it it's like your brain sort of maybe looks at it with a certain distance or it has even within the texture of the image a certain distortion to it that only becomes relevant now that we have um the ability to capture things really clearly I always just think about this in terms of like, because, you know, obviously when you're creating a project, this is a documentary project and you want it to be as like artistically compelling as possible or as, you know, aesthetically pleasing or whatever. But that it's just weird that just automatically when you have these sort of like slightly undersaturated VHSE look or the slightly sort of split color and slightly aged texture, it already endows it with this kind of look. That it that has a, that automatically registers with people as something like this is something nice to look at which is weird and i think it's only because of the fact that the alternative now is so much crisper but yeah i think part of it is is that we would like to imagine that if people in the future stumbled upon footage of our own period or whatever <laughs> we leave behind that they would feel that way about us that mm-hmm. they would think it was so cool and that's part of why i think we we have these kinds of thoughts about mediums from the past because there are we could imagine a situation where nobody cared. Yeah. Where people went, well, that's just people in the past and, and who cares about people in the past? Uh, but that would be depressing for us to imagine people thinking that about us. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is It is th- this thing of, um, yeah, knowing God is dead, no one's watching you and you will be sort of forgotten about. There is this sort of thing, I don't know, I guess it's it was um, it's come up in American culture as well, 
obviously, you know, we have the DNA tests, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, but one of the really successful programs on the BBC for the last 10 or so years is this program called Who Do You Think You Are? Where, um, you know, well-known people uh, go and look at their ancestry and, you know, producers or researchers pick out somebody who had a really interesting life, but who was potentially forgotten or whatever. And, um, you know, it's just, it, there is something about it now, maybe that, you know, we're plucking these people out from the past who at the time were very ordinary, but, um, yes, but the potential for this magical significance is maybe something that's compelling to us. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? The people that they think are interesting, we tend to go, oh, well, let's not focus on them anymore. They've gotten too much attention. And the people that they in their own time regarded as, as boring, we make a big thing out of. Yeah. And I think it's also, it's a lot of people who don't feel significant in themselves trying to feel significant through a connection to some kind of glorious past. Mm -hmm. And in a way, nationalist narratives in general are like that. Um, but, and it's interesting because when people go on these ancestry shows, it's not pitched as trying to connect them to a national past or to a collective past but to some kind of genetic individuated past, mm -hmm. which has a parallel function to antique national narratives. They're looking at some ancestor from 200 or 300 years ago and trying to see some kind of connection, to see some kind of a central element that's in their genes or in their family. Yeah. Uh, and this is done, uh, even Bernie Sanders went on one of these shows. Hey, right. This is something that plenty of people who are left-wing don't have a problem with, but it's not really different from crafting some kind of glorious essential narrative about you know the the slavs or the franks or something mm -hmm. yeah it's like i'm i'm the 16th nephew 20 times removed of louis the 14th or something you know <laughs> yeah, there's something kind of aristocratic about it yeah yeah uh, and people go, well, isn't it supposed to not matter just who your parents were or who your grandparents were? Doesn't it, what matters you know, what you actually are doing and, and how you are helping or not helping other people? Uh, but this focus on ancestry is, is not at all like that. Yeah, ancestry is obviously a really interesting one in terms of, you know, our political economy and stuff. As you say, you know, we're supposed to imagine that you can... Uh, you'd be self-made. I mean, this is certainly a thing in the States, you know, you're self-made or you came from nothing or whatever. But how also in different time periods, it was all about not at all being self-made, but there was a certain glory just about your, by definition, you know, not having to be self-made or coming from a certain family stock or something, uh, which to us now maybe seems very strange that, you know, just by your in accident of birth or whatever, you take on this great significance. It must be they very kind of seem like two different flavors of the same thing to me. That's like true. on the one hand, you're going, okay, I'm significant because I did this myself. On the other hand, you're going, I'm significant because I come from a good lineage. But in both cases, it's very much about me, 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 how <laughs> I am significant relative to others. Other <laughs> people are less significant than me because they're not as meritorious or because their bloodline is less good. Uh, and both of those seem to me to be ways of trying to preserve the self-other distinction. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I always think about how weird it would be. Imagine being uh, like randomly, obviously, let's say you know, in the past, we're from an aristocratic family. You're born into 
you know, it, it's sort of like a given and this is this is the sort of water you, you are born into, the sort of world you're born into. And then now imagine being like Kim Kardashian's daughter or something. Like how weird psychologically would that be? A lot of it's gone the gone the other way. So now a lot of the time, if someone left wing goes on one of these ancestry shows, they don't want to prove that they have a glorious ancestor. They want to prove that their ancestor is as miserable as possible, as as totally lacking in glory as possible, because that lends weight to a liberal merit narrative. You're absolutely right. I know. And this is, yeah, this sort of justification on the left of like, oh, I'm I'm of this background. So therefore, it makes me more uh, meriting of that sort of commiseration. <laughs> I don't know, you know, it sort of escapes where that, I mean, I don't want to say like that victim status or whatever, because again, of course it's very, it's highly capitalistic. You know, it's sort of like, I've, I've, I've had to overcome this just to get to step zero. And then, yeah. 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 It's, it's this constant human need to get one up on somebody else. <laughs> it's a, it's a status fixation. Yes. And in that speech in the movie where, where the, bald guy is given the long long talk about how little everybody matters because you can't get one up on the universe Mm -hmm. and if you can't get one up on the universe then you can't matter because you can only matter relative to the rest of the universe yes this this thinking about mattering as a relative relation Mm -hmm. um, destroys destroys your ability to matter if you take it to its conclusions yeah yeah i mean there is a sort of cosmic element to this film that which I don't, I don't necessarily, yeah, I don't think necessarily solves anything because at the end of the day, we have, you know, because you can, you can bask in the glory of the infinite and everything, but like, <laughs> what's it do about sort of, you know, the slightly shit lot of being a human being and trying to make the best of, you know, because it's almost like, you know, this, this stoic thing. Um, I was doing this course on, on Hegel this weekend, reading the chapter on self-consciousness, where Hegel kind of like goes through these different forms of the ways in which we can kind of manage lack, essentially, you know, in different, you know, it goes from savage to sinner on these different stages and sort of, you know, uh, savage to master slave and stoic, I think. Then what's the next one? I can't remember. It ends up in, 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 in the sort of religious position. And um, the Stoic is no solution at all because the Stoic is this very sort of like quietest thing where, you know, it, you you take all the responsibility onto yourself and you're sort of like, it's almost, it's a very solipsistic, Hegel talks a lot about the sort of solipsism that, you know, you, you this this tendency in these early stages to, to enter into the self, but, you know, you're only a self in relation to the other, you know, you can only, you need in order to sort of like... Um, explain or even understand your existence it has to take place in a non in an other that is also an other so you know the problem with the savage is that it's sort of a war of all against all and one is trying to dominate the other or even the master slave dialectic if you're if you're a master but you need another to sort of like um exist independently in order to sort of for you to be able to understand yourself if you have a, a slave who is essentially rendered less than human and doesn't have a personality of their own then that also doesn't exist it doesn't work so this retreating into the solipsistic vision of the world or you know our, it's so overwhelming and all we can do is da, 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 it's um you know it, it it doesn't really it doesn't work either there's always this sort of i don't know this sort of contradiction that needs to be worked out but yeah, I mean, I guess the point there as well is that we, we're we always coming up with ways to manage the lack and that 
even confronting the void with this great, yes, universal narrative can be not a solution either. Yeah, and I think when it comes to Stoicism, the point in history when Stoicism hits it big is the early Principate, the early Roman Empire, where these aristocrats cannot be senators, but have a recent memory of their being senators, and therefore they're having more participatory relevance in Roman politics. And Stoicism is a way that someone who is an aristocrat can feel like their life matters without having a political role when they're accustomed to defining their role as as being a senator. And as we get further away from the fall of the Roman Republic, Stoicism fades out a bit because these aristocrats are not as attached to participating in politics, mm -hmm. and therefore they don't need the very, very opposite, opposite yeah. of, of, of the quietism. And I, I see uh, something similar happens in Song China, where you get this Tao learning as they mm -hmm. get too many uh, aristocrats, too many uh, young educated people, and they can't fill all of the jobs. The reaction of the young educated people is to craft a political theory in which the goal of being a person is to realize your true nature, which is your nature as a sage. And that's something which you can accomplish outside of political life through self-improvement. Mm -hmm. And I think that this tends to happen whenever you have a large educated population that can't find a role in things and therefore has to retreat into a very reified notion of the self. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of what's going on now with yeah. people, especially in, in the States where there's been this explosion of university education and to a lesser extent in other places where it's happening, but at a bit slower pace, there's an explosion of highly, highly educated people who can't find roles in the system and therefore can't feel part of anything collective in the way in which they were socialized to expect to feel part of the collective. Mm -hmm. And since they can't get what they were looking for, they have to go to the opposite, which is thinking about themselves as valuable insofar as they are morally better than others. Yeah. It's interesting because obviously this is where like aesthetics of things can be like really tricky and like a complete red herring because obviously, you know, Stoics and Spartans are quite different, but, you know, there is that sort of Spartan, like, you know, self-discipline and, you know, being really tough on yourself and whatever. And, but today, aesthetically, maybe this sort of purity culture, you know, it's this quote unquote snowflake culture, et cetera, et cetera. But actually it's very, very, I think, um, harsh, you know, it's very harsh, very, um, domineering on yourself to have to, you know, yes, okay, you might be automatically given certain characteristics by by virtue of, you know, being a woman or this that, and the other. But um, you, yeah, you, there's it's, it's a very always changing, always really high standard of certain moral codes you have to adhere to. Um, yes, and maybe you can busy yourself yeah, with well, that instead of... It's kind of the, the outgrowth of... So when you're in, say, high school... Mm -hmm. And the way that people are traditionally tiered is based on their aesthetic. Are you a cool kid or are yeah. you a weird kid or, or what? Right. So I, you talk to the Zoomers and the Zoomers go, well, it's not really like the old movies anymore. You know, everybody's cool with whatever style you want to have as long as you're into it and it's yours. Right. The people they're not cool with are the people who aren't into constructing the self through aesthetic mm -hmm. styles mm -hmm. and who pick at other people's aesthetic styles. Mm -hmm. And so instead of having a hierarchy that's based around whether you dress like the cool kid or not, 
it becomes what is your attitude to the way other people dress? Are you someone who judges other people? In which case, you must be judged extremely harshly. But of course, they're being judged as well by those who value the aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. So it's it's kind of become a meta a meta version of the old thing, where instead yeah. of having you know jocks and, and nerds, you have people who judge other people for judging other people as jocks and nerds and people who judge those people for judging other people. And it gets into a kind of <laughs> virtue signaling spiral mm -hmm. where everybody's trying to go, well, I'm not being a bully. I don't judge people for this thing. Yeah. But I do judge people who judge people for that thing. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the next level up is to not judge people who judge people for that thing. And you can just kind of, of keep doing this. And I think that's a lot of what's going on with young people now is a kind of trying to be cool by by openly not trying to be cool. Yeah. Yeah, I know. It is it's very strange. It's very strange all of these constructs. These are constructs, but we have new constructs, but they they aesthetically don't look like constructs. So, yes. Right. And that's uh, the kind of postmodern element to this mm. is that, well, if you were doing it in a straightforward way and going, these are the cool kids and these aren't, you can come up with a lot of different aesthetics for what counts as a cool kid and what doesn't. But after a while, and we've had, you know, 60 or 70 years of this post-war high school culture, mm. after a while, it all starts to look like the same thing. So you then have to paper over all of it in a more fundamental way. And the way that young people are papering over it in a more fundamental way is to make bullying itself not cool. Yes. But of course, so so does, do, do you think that bullying sort of goes into a more sort of like all-seeing eye bullying where we can exact the spirit of the bully on that person that we deem to be the bully, but we do it all collectively so we're not bullies, even though we're we're exacting justice? Yeah, the yeah. same thing is happening in terms of cool kids and not cool kids. But because you are you are saying that you're not cool if you try to have a standard of cool kid or not cool kid, the whole thing is a contradiction in terms. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyone who tries to make an old fashioned fifties distinction between cool and not cool, they're not cool because they made a cool not cool distinction. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then you could treat them just as badly as they would treat others. Does does academia have this sort of um obviously every every culture has its own set of rules and then rules beyond rules and rules that you know that you can break if you know the rules. Um does it have a sort of um like what what what's deemed cool within academia? Or is it I don't or I do aspirational, maybe? Is there like an aspirational yeah. set of I think that one of the things that you notice in academia is that every generation decides that the paradigms mm -hmm. that the previous generation used were not just excessively used, but now fundamentally unacceptable and shouldn't be touched at all, right? So I had a friend of mine who did some work that uh, one of his, his uh, examiners said sounded like something that was written in the 80s. Well, when it was written in the 80s, it was published in the 80s and received acclaim in the 80s, Right. But the generation of academics who came up in the 90s and the 2000s, because they were trying to do something new in academia, they couldn't just continue to do what people in the 80s did. If they just continued to do what people in the 80s did, they would be entirely derivative. They would not feel as if they were making a mark. Mm -hmm. So they have to differentiate themselves from the previous groups. They have to say that the paradigm of the previous group 
is is not just uh, not the only paradigm that we could use, but that it's a bad paradigm that nobody should use. And if you use it, then you get a bad mark on an undergraduate essay. So this guy who's who's doing work, which sounds like published work from the 80s, is now getting a very bad mark from the same discipline in the 2020s as a way of saying, you know, when we displaced that paradigm with a different paradigm, we did the right thing. We improved the discipline and moved it in some kind of progressive direction. So I see a lot of this with when we talk about the 80s, a lot of it is structural analysis. In the 80s, a lot of academics were doing very structural work. And the response in the 90s and the 2000s is to go, well, what about the agent? What about the individual? What about the autonomous person? So you have all of this agent-centered uh, stuff, which is very expressly not doing the structural stuff. And if you try to say, well, what about structural stuff? They'll go, well, of course, you know, structural accounts have some insight. Yeah, but we feel that this agent stuff has been heavily neglected. And now there's a new generation coming up that is entering an academic paradigm, which is dominated by agent stuff, agent centered stuff. And there isn't a whole lot of new stuff you can say that is in that paradigm. So in much the same way, the younger generation now has to say, well, not only is, is the agent-centered stuff not the only way to do this stuff, but it's bad and wrong and useless. I mean, that would be me, right? I, I often find myself treating this agent-centered stuff as not just not the only way to do things, but also kind of bad and wrong and useless, right? Because it becomes so ubiquitous and so dogmatic that the only way to make space to do anything else is to say that the dogma is completely useless, not just incomplete, but that it has to be rejected. Uh, and when you get that kind of very, very fixed dogma, you're stuck. The only way to displace it is to negate it. Yeah. So it's interesting because I don't know, I'm like quite into Hegel these days. And like, obviously, it's like there has been sort of a return to Hegel with a lot of contemporary thinkers. But it's like when you when you are sort of engaging in that idea of repetition, but different or the contradiction being sorted out elsewhere or like that that lack and contradiction are at the very heart of everything. It's like, how do you, <laughs> where, does, where do you go in your discipline? You know, it's like, do you create a whole, is obviously that, that's a new way of dealing with the contradiction and maybe it's going to end up, you know, that this will manifest various contradictions and go somewhere else. But I always just find it really funny, this idea of just going, you know, this sort of table tennis thing of like, this was bad and this was bad and this was bad. Well, how about we're like, we actually take it to a level of like, you know, why we have this repetitious back and forth. Um, yeah. it gets, it, I think a big part of what gets in the way is that we think or we have to insist because of this progress narrative that comes from the sciences that when we move to a different paradigm, we are improving the discipline in some way. And we're not improving the discipline. We're doing it differently so that we can do something that is different from what has recently been done so that we can subject what's going on to different frames from the frames that have recently been employed. Uh, and that creates variance it creates intellectual diversity within the discipline but it doesn't straightforwardly improve the discipline mm -hmm. yeah absolutely because once you say improve then you're going to have to do the same thing all over again because once you've improved it by adding this lens then that lens will have to become the hegemonic lens because it's better than the previous lenses yeah and the only way to avoid a hegemonic lens is to say well no lens is the best yeah but to do but that, 
it makes it difficult for you when you're young and you're trying yeah, to establish yourself absolutely. because you have to really argue forthrightly for the approach that you're trying to introduce. And I do think also there's this thing of like, in, in psychoanalysis, there's this idea of transference where you have to go to psychoanalysis. Like, I like some people I know who are like really against psychoanalysis be like, well, hey, it's such a quietest discipline or it's really stupid because you're going to some like man who's giving a judgment on your inner world and you're listening to him and he's going to tell you what to do and that's really stupid and it's like no it's like actually the complete opposite it's like completely dialectical you have to go in with this sort of naive belief that they're going to be able to help you and then you're just gradually disabused of it to be sort of like freed from this sense that there's a big other like ubiquitous all-seeing eye that you know is going to tell you know that there is an answer out there or that there is a thing that you should do and rather just engage in normal life so it's it's the complete opposite of what it's almost like you know in mainstream culture deemed to be but so in, in the same way you know you do like I find this with projects that I do, you have to like arbitrarily throw yourself into some kind of format in order to get to the point where you can have a more um, dialectical vision or complex vision or whatever. You know, you have to like, you have to like throw yourself into the swimming pool and swim in order to like get to that point, maybe. But yeah. Yeah. It's it's the ridiculousness of setting up another person as a sensei. Yeah. And I think that... (laughs) Yeah, just just as it's kind of ridiculous to try to get one up on other people, yeah. it's also ridiculous to enter into relationships with an assumption that you are lower in status Absolutely, or yeah. capacity than the other person. Yeah, uh, and they're really two sides of the same coin. It's interesting though because um, you know this. I I well, political words these days have totally lost meaning, and I think some people who call themselves progressive really don't fall into the progressive camp because I I think the progressive is the ultimate conservative. You know that they're engaged in this bad and bad infinite. You know of Hegel again, where you're sort of always going towards this utopian. We can always get there and sacrificing the present. And basically, you know, as maybe I was talking about in my intervention at the beginning like a zombie engaging in this forward motion and this utopian belief that we can get somewhere and shooting yourself in the foot in the present. But really all there is is this eternal present. And that, you know, Hegel argues that the good infinite is a sort of more circular thing where it's circular, but it's not a suffering circular. It's sort of engaging in this repetition and understanding that we move forward in this sort of spiral way. Um, and that like human subjectivity is really, in you know, within this sort of good infinite mode and the bad infinite is this perpetual pursuit and you know this comforting religious perpetual pursuit of something better in the future it's like of course you know we have to orientate ourselves towards like that we we automatically orientate ourselves towards making things better but we don't actually make things better when we look to a utopia we can only make things better by engaging in the here and now yeah, and I think you see that a lot in academia with this emphasis on citing work that's recently been written. The assumption being that there's been some kind of progress in the discipline and that the work that's recently been written is therefore better than the older work uh, simply because it's recently been written and that there's a kind of ongoing conversation that is improving over time. And you know, to some degree in culture, there's an awareness that that's not the case. That's why we have nostalgia for older artistic forms. But to a large degree in academia, people are still trying to treat it as a science, and science is very much gripped by that modern progress narrative. The trouble is that once you break out of the progress narrative, then you get this tyranny of a kind of postmodern view, which says that everything is equally valid, equally useful. Well, this is is the thing, because of course, 
and I, I think psychoanalysis is a great answer to this, which is that like, of course, like, you know, um, I was, Todd McGowan is the thing I really like, and I was doing a lecture series on him and a lot of the students are like, well, what's the praxis? What's the praxis? But it's like, well, no, what, what we're talking about here is this frees us to see what is the right thing to do. You know, it's, it's freedom from this deluded belief that shoots us in the foot. And that, of course, we, instead of being like, you know, the postmodern thing is just engaging in the same utopian thing where the utopia is instead, well, we can find, uh, the best solution just by realizing, you know, it's no, we still live in the real world, you know, so it's like this can maybe get us to the point of being confronted, you know, Freud calls it everyday unhappiness, the like bland disappointment of reality. We have the, you know, um, the veil, not, I don't even think it's a veil taken from ours, but we can see more clearly what we're dealing with in order to make better value judgments. Because of course, of course, some things are better than others, of course. And I think this is how science works. You know, we, you go into an experiment, um, very much being like, you know, I don't know what I'm going to find. Um, because, you know, I'm not going with a preconceived notion that I'm going to absolutely be solving all the planet's problems by doing this. But rather you go with a sort of dumb sense of unknowing in order to, and knowing that this could be a complete waste of time and that knowing that things in the past could be more, in order to do the discovery, you know, to find the truth, because there is a truth. I think this is a thing, yeah, with that postmodern thing, that there's, oh, there's no such thing as truth. It's like, well, of course there is, like, <laughs> of course there is. Yeah, it's that it's that life is always about every person has got to kind of have their own. Uh, everybody gets in different moments in time closer and further away from truth. Every person has moments where they are closer to it and further away from it. No one person possesses it mm -hmm. and no one society or culture can possess it yeah. in such a way that they don't have to continue to think about it or don't have to to reevaluate it. It's something that as soon as you get near it, if you think you have it, then it's gone. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, it kind of what, in, when you're a kid, there's a period in your life when you're a little kid and you're kind of given rules about how to live from adults. And they're a kind of dogma and you do them because they're received from the adults who are mm -hmm. the people in charge. Uh, and you have to do that because you don't have judgment and you're not mature enough to make decisions. But ideally, you get to a point where you can then question those rules and question the authority of those adults, and you can challenge all of that. Now, if you stay in that and you just spend the rest of your life challenging authority, I think that's a failure. And it's a failure that is is perhaps even worse than than staying in the dogma of the adults forever. Absolutely. I, like I entirely agree with you. It's the perpetual adolescent but that's you're in a symbiotic relationship with the rules you just want you want better rules or you want to replace the rules with new rules in this very childish mode i like i, I entirely agree with you i think i actually one of our early episodes of just of estranged adrian and i had a bit of a disagreement about this there's a theological writer kester bruin who's written about the um the prodigal son um, and that basically, I mean, I, I've never read the Bible, so I don't really know, but I think it's to do with um, the prodigal son returns, you know, he goes out and learns and he returns to, you know, the family. 
And I, I believe I could be misquoting that, you know, this analysis is like, no, no, he should be going out perpetually, you know, going out and setting his own weight. But it's like, it's almost like it's, it's both and like neither one of those is necessarily a solution. But I think that the, the perpetual progressive is like almost more, it's certainly more capitalistic than the conservative. I think that's the, that's the difference. I think they're both conservative positions, but I actually think that the, the progressive is far more capitalistic than the conservative. The conservative is not a solution either. But this perpetual belief that there's something utopian. I mean, I think you can always move forward with the knowledge that, you know, you don't know, you might be wrong, you might be going in the wrong direction. But this idea that you can just perpetually um, sort of obstinately um, rebel against authority your way to a better world. <laughs> like, there's nothing wrong with confrontation, of course, but it's just this perpetual symbiotic, like, relationship with, like, challenging your betters, um, but that obviously means that you're trying to sort of like besiege the castle, but you, maybe you don't want to besiege the castle because you don't want to get there either. So you have to kind of like have this perpetual. Yeah. It's the two D's dogmatism yeah. and deconstruction yeah. and the inability to do either to, to do something, which isn't one of the two. Mm-hmm. At some point you, you are, you should be able to get to a point where you're able to say, okay, there are some things wrong with the way that I was brought up, but people do have to be brought up in some way, yeah, shape, or form. Absolutely. What would then be a better way of doing that? Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And I think this is the thing as well, and we see this at the moment with a lot of stuff within the culture wars, is like the ability to have two truths in your head at the same time, you know, <laughs> that like, yes, maybe form old ways of um, being brought up are wrong, but also they needed to happen in order for you to understand that they were wrong. But also, you know, people are limited in their decisions and there's no, no magical solution also because we are human beings who live in sort of a chaosmos and who are lacking beings in the first place. That yes. Yeah. yeah. People think that knowing what was wrong with the way it was originally done is the same as knowing what to do. Absolutely. Yes. That's very true. And. Yeah, and you could you could say that the way that it was done was wrong, but that doesn't necessarily tell you anything at all about what to do about it. Exactly. And then you just end up in sort of a revenge politics, you know, perpetual replacing one victim with the net, with a with another victim and one hero with a, you know, a hero with a villain and a victim with a villain. I don't know, you know, you just re- you were in this kind of merry-go-round of of the same stuff, different different aesthetic. Yeah, I think one of the things people have a hard time with is if you recognize that the formative institutions which brought you up were badly formed in lots of different ways, then that also includes uh, the the implication that you are badly formed in lots of different ways and that your judgment is likely to be off in lots of different ways because you're a product of those institutions which you recognize as troubled. And so that should leave you feeling very uh, unsure and feeling very questioning about what to do. It shouldn't give you a clear answer that you are absolutely certain about. Because if you're if you're that epistemically great, then surely the way you were brought up was great too, and we shouldn't change it. <laughs> unless you unless you believe in you don't believe in systems and a purely believe in agency and that you are you know, one individual can be especially connected to the divine and have a sort of transcend the facticity. Yes. Have a have a yeah. yes. A phone line with God telling them how the way that things should be done. I mean, this is the thing, because of course, none of us have that knowledge. So there always has to be a bit of humility 
in in uh, in the way we go about things, you know. But, but also, you know, you, that doesn't mean that you should just sit around and be a stoic or a quietist and do nothing. <laughs> like, right. We have to do something. Yeah. Right. We have to act. And I think that really to, you know, to say that you're acting well is is to say that you're acting on the basis of what you believe is right in the moment, recognizing that you might be wrong. Mm -hmm. And if it turns out that you're wrong, then you, know, you change your behavior. But you can live with having been wrong, provided that you did what you thought was the right thing in that moment based on that situation. But this is this as well, though, is like this idea of, you know, revenge politics and forgiveness and grace and everything, you know. So um, the 12 steps, I think, works because the step zero is grace. You know, you say like, you know, I'm Helen and I'm addicted to X or whatever, you know, and you kind of declare it. But in order to do that, you have to have a sort of forgiveness for yourself that you have done it and it's okay and you're accepting that you've done it in order to then be able to get to the, the point of building something new, engaging the 12 steps to get beyond this addiction. And this addiction is potentially to do with the fact that you don't have this forgiveness for yourself for having transgressed in the first place. And so you're engaged in this kind of repetitious thing. And I sometimes think about this, you know, with, you know, political stuff that like not being able to have grace for other people and the understanding that as abhorrent as you know, some decisions that people make may be, there may be actual reasons that drove them to do it. You know, then, then you're just, you just, you never get past step one. <laughs> well, and it comes out of that, out of that pride, right? Mm -hmm. So when you don't want to forgive yourself for something, it's because you think you should be better than that thing. Mm -hmm. uh, you think you should be better than the causes in the universe which result in people doing that. Yes. And many people are able to say that, well, other people, their behavior, yeah, it's caused by social issues and it's caused by the way they were brought up and so on. But they always want to say to themselves, oh, no, I can transcend all of that. And then when they can't transcend all of that, they want to punish themselves for lacking the will mm -hmm. or lacking the, the virtue. And oftentimes addictive and, and self-destructive behavior is a form of self-punishment for that. And so it really comes out of this pride and it really comes out of this attempt again to, to get one up on the universe, to dunk on the universe, to be an uncaused cause. And when you're trying to be an uncaused cause, you're trying to be God. You're trying to be a prime mover. And I think a lot of people are, because they feel kind of overpowered by this society in a lot of ways, they react by trying to assert that they can transcend it and assert the, the magnificence of their agency. And I think that the whole academic trend to emphasize, emphasize, emphasize agency all the time over the last 20 or 30 years, I think a lot of that is about this, this God complex that a lot of people have, that they should be able to transcend facticity. And it's extraordinarily prideful. You know, it's funny because now you say this thing of the, the last 20 years, this agency thing, and then suddenly this reversion to more of a, like a, a, a system thing. So do you get some like horrible kind of deformed offspring of the two <laughs> where you have the, this is like woke politics where it's like structural, but it's all your fault. You know, I just think it's, <laughs> it's yeah, such yeah, a crazy it's structural for everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Right. Except for when you feel like blaming them, in yeah. which case it's their fault. <laughs> you know, I find it. It's. I also find um, this idea of intersectionality. I mean, the, the thing, the thing that is positive about about it, it's like the plus in LGBTQ, blah blah blah, is that the plus indicates the failure of this categorization. You know, that it's like yes, 
absolutely, all of these categories will never be enough, you know, because everybody has contingently different forms of desire. And that, you know, that's born out of early experiences in life. Um, and the same with the intersectionality, you have to have all these new adjacent things where you can be like, X come Y come Z. And it's the fact that it's the accumulation that indicates the failure <laughs> of this of this system. But I always find it funny, you know, the um, this idea, it came up a lot uh, last year on the, the Instagram meme circuit of um, different types of racism. Because obviously, you know, you come up with this idea that this is going to be the thing that explains all race, it's institutional or it's systemic. And suddenly, you know, you have these graphs or these infographics or images where it's like this type of racism, this type of racism, this type of racism, this type of, and you just add them on, you know, sort of unconscious bias, systemic bias. And it's like, this is just not, this is just not the map. Can we not, can we not see that this map is inaccurate and that maybe... The the failure is is this accumulation, and so we're looking at maybe a different cause altogether of this racism, um, which you know exists or is born out of something that we're missing. But um, yeah, it is. It's uh, these these Instagram. If you're not, you're not yeah. on Instagram, it's good that you're not. They've got to do that because once you have a career built around a particular lens then that lens has got to be applicable to everything. Because as soon as you admit that there are some ways in which the lens falls short, now you've opened up space in the discipline for people to come in, move in, take your funding and, and take your p positions and displace you. Your lens has got to be the hot lens. Your lens has got to be something which can explain everything. And I think that's part of the life cycle of lenses. Lenses invariably overreach. And they have to overreach because of the market imperative of the academic who has to have a career and therefore has to persuade people that this lens is relevant. And it, it results in theories that we would never get if academics were materially comfortable and didn't have to constantly justify to others what they're doing. And particularly to other people who are non-academics, who are funders, who are employers, who are governments. Uh, it's because this of this justificatory process that we get worse and worse applications of a theory over time. Absolutely, um, it's it's interesting. You know, I, I sometimes find these 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 terms that come up. You know, like um, you know that have a certain patina to them, or like a kind of um, you know an onomatopoeia or an alliteration. It endows them with this sort of like legitimacy. Um, uh, so it's funny. I used to I used to train as an athlete and there were all these sort of sayings to do with training that if they rhymed they must be true you know so it's if in doubt leave it out isn't like if you have a sore leg you shouldn't do the session you know? so it's sort of it this sort of um poeticism endows it with like it's it's not just some some person utter invention it's from an encyclopedia it must be true and obviously it's like you know you can't really use latin language or greek language like they do in, in medicine when they come up with terms to delineate a set of symptoms so i always find it funny when it's like um, there was one I saw the other day, a new term, and it was like, you know, it had internal rhyme and alliteration. And you're like, that's a, you know, <laughs> it must be a real thing because it's just. If it's aesthetically cool, it's got to be true. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Um, well, should we leave it there for the A side and then move on to the B side? Yeah, yeah, let's do that. So we're going to go over and record our episode for patrons. Thank you for listening. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much for listening. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Bye.